millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Roker Report podcast in association with Sutherland Community Soup Kitchen and her game to the campaign against sexism and misogyny in football. My name's Rich Spate and I'm joined down the line this evening by a very special guest, a former Sunderland player, a writer and editor of a football magazine. We're joined by Jen O'Neill. How are you this evening, Jen? I'm good, thank you. I'm, I'm focusing on what you're asking, but I'm also got another eye on Arsenal in the Women's Champions League. What, what, what's, the score? what's the score currently? It's 1-0 to Arsenal. 1-0 to, to Arsenal? They're in Denmark. Yeah, they are. I saw them, I saw them all over the social media. If anybody follows women's football and watched the World Cup in 2019, Nikita Paris took a penalty and had it saved again. Why is she still doing this to herself? Her avatar on um, on FIFA is, I think, my son's favourite player at the minute because she keeps winning uh, winning him championships right now. Uh, he's, he's quite obsessed with playing with the England women's team but, at the minute. But as, his thing. as we all know, as Sunderland supporters, it's like just penalties are just... <laughs> you can't the the whole concept of them is a, and as an England well, fan I just can't cope yes. with them so uh, yeah might might as well. I always write a game off if it goes to penalties we'll get into it you've had a, a long association with football long association with Sunderland football club and football in Sunderland how did you get into playing the game because I guess back in the 80s it wasn't too common for for girls I to be I- kicking the ball around. I would have thought I'm 46. I don't mind saying that. There were surely people of a similar age knew quite a lot of the lads would have known one or two girls that played football in the, their town at least. Or yeah, yeah. So yeah, but it was it wasn't wasn't all the girls by any means. No, no. But Not... actually, so I grew up in a cul-de-sac in Jarrow, in a in a on an estate in Jarrow, and my friends similar age were boys, and so I just started playing football with them, and they were good footballers as well, and that was from. The age of about six when we moved there until I think even like 18, 19 when I came back from uni, I would have a kick about with them. And that's when I knew <laughs> that because they didn't hold back. I remember being lifted in, in one tackle and it took about sort of five seconds to come back down to earth. So I, I never had any um, misconceptions about the the difference in physicality between men and women, you know, when people go on about, oh, well, why can't you have mixed football? Like, to an extent, that might work, but it's, I don't think it, it it would really in reality. But yeah, so I just knocked about with the lads and played with them. Then even at actually primary school, because I played, we had about four or five different uh, girls would play on at break at, at on at lunchtime. It was like teacher strike, so 
I got to play one or two friendly games against other schools in the school team. And another girl did as well. Be- because I played all the way through, she'd played and, and was and was reasonable. I, I was good at all sport. I think that's the, the same story, isn't it? But mm-hmm. the easiest thing to practice on your own is football, take a ball, keep your ups, show off at the bus stop, in front of the bus stop. When the bus comes, do a few extra tricks and that kind of thing um you, you can't do that with a netball or a hockey stick i used to nearly take the neighbor's dog out when she tried to go for the ball when i was practicing playing hockey on the grass outside so it was always football and i was a and my neighbor mark webber he was like my best mate mm-hmm. he was a sunland supporter so i think his him and his dad took me it must have been about i don't know like 10 or 11 something like that because i remember for a few years begging for a sunland shirt the nike one for christmas and they wouldn't they wouldn't get me it because i think my mum dad thought it was like a phase or something um <laughs> maybe i was a bit younger actually and then in about 89 i think it was there was an advert in the program sunland in those days can you remember they were the caring club yeah yeah absolutely so the yeah. community section was a big thing and it was um Mick Ferguson, ex-Leeds player, who was head of the community at the time, I think he must have spoken to a few other sort of football in the community officers around the country. And, and I think it had been probably spearheaded by Millwall had taken a team and had actually done quite a lot of developing young players throughout the 80s. A lot of the England team, Hope Howell, mm-hmm. people like that, came through Millwall. So maybe he spoke to Jim Hicks or somebody who's doing something equivalent. And um, so adverts in the programme turned up and had a bit of a kick about and that kind of thing. And I think because that did attract quite a few people who were enthusiastic, but not that many great footballers, he then managed to find these... Well, there was a -a five-a-side league at the Northumbria Centre in Washington. People should know it. Is it still there? Yeah, I used to play a -a five-a-side there myself. Well, that was on a Wednesday night and... Actually, there were some really quite decent teams in it. The White Horse from South Shields had a team ra- randomly. Uh, but there was these two teams from Easington, and they made up. They ended up making the bulk of the, the Sunderland team, plus a few extras that sort of got dragged in. And I, I went and played for, for like one of the Easington teams on a Wednesday night. And um, yeah, and then they, they had some good footballers and some real characters. So it was, yeah, it was a kind of ramshackle bunch of, of people brought together. Um, and I think Mick Mick took charge of it for a little while and then played a few sort of friendlies with Northeast teams. Not that there was many. There was Middlesbrough was obviously had the heritage from the, the 70s mm-hmm. and Newcastle. And I think probably around the same time Cowgate Kestrels were starting up. I can't quite remember playing them, but they become more important as time goes on because they become our sort of main rivals. Yeah, so, and then in 1990, a team went to France to play in a, a friendly tournament in San Jose, which I guess is the twin town in France of Sunderland. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. That, and I, I think that was a sort of the, the start of it becoming a bit more serious and, and better run. I, I say serious and better run, that's it's all relative because it definitely wasn't. But I, I think I was, I was about 15 or 16 and Sue Smith, who was one of the forwards who played for Sunderland for a long time she, yeah. I think she was only 14 so you, and then you, you've got these sort of teenagers um, who, who got drunk on the boat that kind of thing <laughs> well that that I mean that is one thing we'll come to in, in a bit in terms of like the the age at which a lot of players started and the kind of the range of ages involved in women's footballs but especially early in 
the development, I guess, of the of at least modern women's football in in England. But also, I mean, we we have the same now. We've got Grace Eid, who's just broken into into Mel Ray's side, age sixteen, signed straight up from the 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 regional talent club. So it's it's still there, and 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 it and it does amaze me. But you went off to you went off to Oxford, which yeah. must have been exciting. Well, I was just going to say, so that that tournament, there's a there's a picture or two because we were presented on the Roker Park pitch. I got a, my player of the tournament thing from Tony Norman and there was a picture of the team and the most horrendous array of shell suits you could imagine, but it was 1990. Um, and, and I think in the women's game got a boost because of the World Cup that year. And, yeah. and so in, I think a lot of people, a lot of kids, everybody was like, you get, well, that, that was a ph- phenomenal tournament. So it gave the game a boost and, and there was a national league started by the WFA and that suddenly made the women's game way more serious than it had been and that meant we were playing against good teams. So actually at the age of sort of 17, 18, I, I, was, I was taking it quite seriously. I was fit and, and we were playing, you know, as far south as Milton Keynes and you're playing in wow. cup competitions. And before that, we'd been in the Yorkshire and Humberside League. So all of our, uh, every game apart from home games, it was like two or three hours. And... and some of the lasses would have been out on the night before, got drunk, didn't want to play, didn't turn up for the bus. We'd be driving around in the minibus, knocking on people's doors, <laughs> trying to get people out of bed <laughs> to come and play. Or, or I know so-and-so, she'll come and play. So, so so that was the Yorkshire. And then you go into the National Division or the National League North and South Division, and, and that became a bit more serious. Then I went to university. So, so the, it did start being more of a, a better or at least it needed to be better run in sort of 91, 92. And we were a decent standard as well for, for that time, I guess. And Cowgate Kestrels were, were in that league as well. Yeah, and, and there didn't seem to be too many records around of that time. So it was really interesting to hear about like what was going what was going on and how organised it was. And so how how did you do in that in that national division? Were you were you competitive? Um, it, well, it was a national league, but it was a north and south mm. division. All oh, right, okay. Yeah, so um, we were sort of middle to below middle, <laughs> so, but that we we were playing against more established clubs. You know, there were mm-hmm. you know wolves teams like that. I think were were in the uh, Villa, and some of those teams had been around for quite a while there's teams have been established throughout the 80s playing in, in cup competitions and, and and local sort of regional leagues no it's it's it is really interesting to, to hear about 90s women's football wasn't something that i was particularly aware of but it was under the auspices of the wfa so it's a bit like what's happened now with the wsl it's like women's football didn't exist before 2011 well it's a bit like when the fa took over 92, 93, it's like women's football didn't exist at all before that. So the WFA did actually send out newsletters every week, which were quite detailed and gave you quite a lot of mm-hmm. information. And so they are knocking around and I've I've got some floating about. And so there are some real, uh, well, they're very important people, they're anoraks who've kept this information because otherwise it would just be totally ignored. I think it's really important historical documents. And, and when it comes to Sunderland Football Club, I'm sure... The historians around the club, Rob and others, will be really, really interested to see some of that material. Because I, I spoke to Rob a couple of weeks ago about this matter, and he said that there's a job to be done there. There's a project. There's a there's almost a social history project, really, that is, you know, there to be done in terms of collating and recording and 
kind of making sure that all of this stuff is kept for the history of the sport because it's really important, mm. you know, and and especially even you know the oral history from people like yourself uh, who were there, who who were on the minibuses knocking up their, their mates to come and play Yorkshire and Humberside League games. That's where the the game came from, and it's and and it's really important stuff. So we used to train at the Charlie Hurley Centre, but I think then they decided that they probably didn't want us there, so they shifted us to Moor Lane between Cleveland and Whitburn. It's where oh, yeah. the where the academy or the academy of light is now, but they they just had a couple of fields there. It was actually quite a decent surface, but that was a sort of subsidiary um, training ground that Sunderland had. Was that where the the youth team played on a Saturday morning? Yeah, it, probably was. Yeah, yeah. yeah I but it, I mean, it didn't have Saturday. perimeter anything. It was no, just no. yeah, it was just a bit of grass. Yeah, it was turn up and and stand around the edge of the pitch. Stuff. Yeah, but but you were supported by the by Sunderland Football Club and I think that's that's an important thing to to get down that you know the 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 club has insti- did instigate the 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 team yeah and the they were one section. of the one of the first professional clubs to do that I think so that that's worth acknowledging the problem is that then it was a bit checkered after that cuz um certainly in 2000s and whatever and when when money came into the game more and yeah, yeah then and they didn't have it or priorities changed but we did we wore the men's kit the, but the the sort of hand-me-down men's kit so I'm sure one game I got well, it used to have to because it was massive but the problem was if you got John McPhail's shorts because <laughs> you know how he used to like rip them up the side oh yeah because he obviously had big thighs and if he was going to leg it up the pitch to have a face, he needed to have, <laughs> you need to be able to stride <laughs> didn't he so they were already huge these Hummel shorts and then like don't oh shit I've got John McPhail's shorts again <laughs> like which is which but yeah you would you'd be like floating like you'd be like having some kind of umbrella or um a balloon attached to you well you did get a place at Oxford University yeah it's amazing isn't it <laughs> Com- comprehensive kid from Jarrow South Tyneside College in itself back then it can't have been too many lasses from from Jarrow from the northeast who who went down or whether a, a few of you yeah. I mean from a technical college from South Tyneside College I think it was the second year they did A levels as well um no uh, yeah there were there weren't any people who did that and and that's actually a problem because I felt like a totally like a fish out of water but football was my savior in a way because although I made friends in my college who studied this, This well, were reading geography like me. When people say, what did you read? I always say beer and football, because that was more the truth. Um, <laughs> although I've made good friends at college, I also met uh, people from the Oxford University women's football team who had similar backgrounds to me and were actually decent players. One of them, Kirsty Hewitson, played in a cup final for Southampton and played Arsenal reserves for a while and uh, played for Wembley in a Premier League Cup final and stuff. So, yeah, I, I was a fish out of water. I was, I, I sort of lived up, up to the stereotype of being a northeast girl. <laughs> but it's good that you had football there to kind of like as a solace and as as a as a way of just like connecting with people. Because I've heard many stories of people who've been Oxford Bridge Unis from kind of our kind of backgrounds, comprehensive school kids from the northeast who have have really you know struggled to make those social connections and that's the great thing about football as well it's a, it's a leveler i guess yeah um and you, well, in, in many ways yeah and you meet people from uh, certainly like um 
at Oxford they have like Rhodes or various types of scholars. So you meet these Americans that come over and then you're what? But you're from Stanford? All right, I've heard of them. You know, like they they have they were like big uh, soccer mm-hmm. colleges and and good players would come along. We played in the local leagues and around Oxford in the southern region, but they hated us because we couldn't play uh, certain times of the year because we mm. weren't in college. So that was quite interesting, learning the politics of regional leagues when I went to meetings and stuff. So you you, you did your three years? You did your degree? And every every time I came home, I was... I was Granville Mervyn was the manager at that time. So originally he was a guy called Ray Houghton, I think, who was a taxi driver, probably from Easington. He used to like <laughs> smoke all the time out the window, but he's such a genuine guy. He had a sheepskin coat, so he was obviously a manager. Um, he was in charge, and then Granville Mervyn came in, who was an A license coach and worked, I think, at, with some of the Sunderland kids teams. And and he always said that when Jen comes back from university, she's so in into the first team. So I sort of still played when I was at home, but it wasn't at the same level as the the national league that we'd been in previously had been. Right. So. Uh... So you were, the club was moving kind of between national and regional leagues, given... Well, it sort of dropped out of that and then it didn't have the same calibre of players, although there were some sort of good young players coming through. Yeah, so and, and around about, I guess, the same time you finished uni, did you get started to get involved in journalism then and writing about football? And I think you mentioned in the lead-up to our um, our chat that you were, you were making programmes. Is is that something that you were involved in? Um, well, no, that was just I, I was the media officer for the oh, women's right. team, like for for Blythe and then for Sunderland, which we'll sort of explain. Um, I I would add though that all through the nineties, when I was even especially while I was at university, is more impressive. My dad would drive the Sunderland team in the minibus to every wow. game, like all all over the. Yorkshire and God knows wherever, and he did that without fail. And he was the secretary of the team, and then he got he helped set up the Northern League and the Northern Combination through the FA. What what a nice bloke! The bloke who wouldn't buy me any football boots or a Sunderland top when I was a kid because it was a phase. But he was a guy who believed that every I was talk about him in the past tense. He's still with us. Um, he he believed that everybody should be, have the opportunity to play football if yeah. we want to, and so that's. But I think that's massive. And but I'm a bit like him. That it's not. It'll never be about him. Yeah, there's there's so many um, parents like that as well. You know, um, I think we we spoke to Beth Mead's dad a few weeks ago on our last uh, podcast live, um, just finding out, you know, all about he how he'd supported her career and I know she talks really highly about how they pushed her to the next level every time you know to move from from kind of Whitby to Middlesbrough to Sunderland to Arsenal and and keep moving forward in her career and we we also you know we know that a lot of our Lasses podcast live listeners are the the mums the sisters the dads of the current team and and I think you know that that's still there in the game isn't it um, that the the parents of of you know, young female footballers are are really important to to the to the development of the game overall and the, and the maintenance of the game. Yeah, but I wasn't even there. That's the sort of yeah. like a lot of it. And even when I got back, I had sort of half had ideas about um, an American girl that was supposed to go and play in Sweden, but she got a contract in the pro league at the time in Japan. So she got in touch and said. Um, I've told them about you. Do you want to go to Sweden? So I sort of got training a bit and then dislocated my elbow, which seemed I'd already done once at university. 
became a bit of a long term problem for me. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of um, I got a phone call from Granville, who then moved to Blythe. And he said, um, will you come along and just train with us to, to get fit to start with? And around about the same time, I got a call from somebody who'd set up a women's football magazine in based in Gateshead, Andy Mullen. His uh, stock line is that Newcastle sold Andy Cole and his daughter was really upset. And he was a publisher looking to find a sort of niche um, area to, to start up a magazine. And so he thought, oh, well, hang on a minute, there's something in this. That's where the kernel of the idea came from. And that was in 1996. And I joined in, I, I graduated in 1996, did various sort of bits and bobs and then joined On The Ball, as it was called, in 1998, in April. My first job was to go down to London and interview Hope Powell in her flat because she'd just been given the England job or, well, got the England job. That's that's a, that's a great assignment. You know, that's... Yeah, that's she likes been... me then. <laughs> <laughs> she made me a cup of tea. She gave me an Italy um, boot bag. She must have got playing an, an international um, game against them. We had a good chat. You know, it must have kind of raised your, you know, ambitions in terms of what's possible in the media and you can go and speak to, you know, the, the main people in the game. And you no, well, make... nobody else was interested. That's the problem <laughs> to, a, to a large extent. I, I didn't have any necessarily, like, ambitions to become a journalist, although all my friends would say, oh, you should get into writing because I would normally be sending them silly emails or sort of maybe good with words and I'd done my um, work experience when I was 16 at the Shields Gazette <laughs> so that was that was exciting wasn't it that was that was always kind of I suppose on the cards but I wasn't that keen on the competition to get into that area and I wasn't that keen actually to join on the ball when I was first asked I had to have a think about it and then what I did decide was why I, f- I felt embarrassed to be a female footballer so I then thought well this is wrong. Nobody should feel like this. I'm going to try and make sure that other people don't feel like that by being the place where that information is shared and make role models and do all of those things. And it started a career of just basically doing anything you're asked or coming up with um, things that you can do to, to help the game. It's been pretty crazy, to be honest. No, it's a really important role, though, in promoting the game, promoting the people who play it and, the, and like you say, the people who kind of make it happen behind the scenes as well and and you mentioned that you were you went up to Blythe were Blythe part of the Kestrels at that point because well cause this, is, this is women's football Kestrels it's... moved around they were Cowgate and then they were Newcastle and then they were Blythe well they were, yeah so they were they were Cowgate initially and sort of a lot of their players came from Blake Law mm-hmm. Cowgate and then and they were like a five-side team. I think they started out as yeah. as well. Um, and then the um, I don't know the order. They were RTM Kestrels. They were Ke- like Newcastle Blue Star. They were with, and then uh, Blythe must have invited them in. And it, it was at, I was only there maybe two years while it was at Blythe, um, and it was fantastic there. It was so good. Like the the like Blythe Spartans fans support. Like not we're not talking huge numbers, but. But they respected and supported the women's team because it was Blythe, because it was their club. That was happening elsewhere in the country, but I hadn't really seen it to that extent before. Do you know, like you're in the car park or something arriving and somebody's leaving the bar or you're, you're the centre-back on you, you're this number six or whatever. You're, they kind of they recognised who you were just in the car park. They're like, well, yeah, <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a nice thing. 
was was that the position you were playing then? You were you were you were in the in the in the back four for Blythe? Um, yeah, by then I had been a midfielder at university and um, but also would play left back, sort of left wing wing back when I was fitter or in in other teams. I played British universities, so representative, and that's how on the ball heard about me. All oh, right, and because they asked the manager of that, do you know somebody who's graduated recently? From the northeast, who would be good to to come on board to work with us on this magazine? So you had two years with the Kestrels in Blythe, and what's what standard was was that? What league? What league structure were you playing in? Well, that, that was the that was the Premier League in the but in the Northern Division. All right. The the one well one of the good things about the WSL is that it doesn't have a huge long winded name. So it was the at that time I think AXA were, AXA were sponsors even then. So it was the AXA. Uh, women's Premier League Northern Division or Southern Division or National Division. So there was the top tier and then there was the two regional leagues below that. And Blythe were um, in the in the Northern. Sunderland obviously just came come out of the FA Women's National League Premier Division, which is the third tier. So that's it? the old Premier League because yeah. <laughs> they fought to keep it going. Yeah. So so yeah. So that's the same. Structure retained a bit like kind of in the men's game where the football league remained after the Premier League was was created. So yeah, that, there you go. Learning loads tonight. So two years there playing at that level, and then you ended up back with Sunderland. And that story, that story, I think, is one that I think a lot of people are intrigued by. How Kestrels at Blythe became Sunderland women. Well, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna say that this will stand up in a court of law because I need to <laughs> double check a few things. But how I remember it or interpret it, and I, th- I think I was possible. I think some people on the wounded party side suggest that I was a, a, a main instigator in this, <laughs> but I really wasn't. I don't think. I don't. I, I wasn't. But we were blithe, and it became apparent that East Durham and Hoffel College, which are they still called that, Peter, based at Peter Lee, but they also have the, the um, campus at Hoffel, they wanted to take us in and they had uh, money. <laughs> so not, not, well, nobody was getting paid, but we were paying, buying umpteen raffle tickets every week and trying to raise money and paying subs and stuff to play for Blythe. We were travelling all over the, the country. We were we played prem, a Premier League Cup game against Southampton. So so And we always drew Arsenal in the League Cup. I mean, you didn't even need to look at the draw. You knew we were going to get Arsenal and you knew it was going to be away <laughs> and you knew you, it was going to be painful. And that carried on a bit, actually, into the 2000s. But um, So East Durham were waving cash at us and... Um, and that's when Mick Mulhern was brought on board um, and his his assistant, Alan Snowden, who uh, was with Gateside College, which has been important in the genesis of Sunderland women's team as well. Mm-hmm. So many players and, and obviously Mel's coach there. Um, so, so that was, he came on board and we became East Durham Kestrels and we played in white and purple and we played at Peter Lee and we won the league. I mean, we don't, in, in every season I played for, a version of Sunderland. We either won the Northern Division or finished runners up in it, or were in the the top flight. And if we didn't win anything, I was probably injured. <laughs> I did spend a couple of years where where I had a um sort of injury ravaged time. But yeah, so we went to East Durham, 
we won the league and I was trying to get sponsors and all this kind of stuff and putting together packages and thinking, oh, well, maybe they'll sponsor us, they'll sponsor us. And and in, in the midst of all of this, I don't know who made the initial contact, but Bob Oates was the community director at, or football in the community, the new version of it at Sunderland at that time. And obviously Sunderland were kind of doing quite well, mm-hmm. sort of around 2000. So they said, oh, ooh, why don't you... Because we've just got promoted promoted into the national division, this is like the this is the big time. Why why don't you come and join us and we'll look after you and you'll give up we'll give you all the, the stuff that you need. The problem was they already had a Sun and Ladies team which was playing a bit lower down the pyramid, but that's not really our problem. It's a really sort of callous thing to say. And various meetings and threats of, you know, legal action and stuff and votes and uh, protracted nonsense. We ended up moving to in and going under the auspices of Sunderland and merging with that Sunderland ladies team. But the problem being that only a couple of them then were sort of good enough to stay around the first team. And sadly, they some of those sort of frittered away. So that was in that that summer. So the first season in the national division, yeah. which is which is the equivalent of the WSL now. We were Sunderland wearing the night kit and we got tracksuits and everything. <laughs> <laughs> so you were getting good amount of support and with you from Kestrels, if I'm not wrong, came Mel Ray. Was she in the side yes. with you? And Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was at she was um yeah, she was she was top scorer in the league for Blythe two seasons in a row. The we had a player called Aaron Embleton who made it into the England team. Um she was a like a little mazy little dribbler. And she moved to Doncaster Bells. I think the year that we got promoted, we'd finished runners-up. Then she got poached and she went to, to Doncaster. And uh, everybody thought, oh, well, haven't, some, oh, haven't, Durham, oh, haven't the Kestrels done really well because they've lost their best player? But she wasn't really our best player. We had a load of other good players and Mel was one of them. It was her and Donna Lanigan were the big goal. The, I say big goal scorers, Donna's only tiny <laughs> from Jarrah mm. as well. But yeah, Mel was a, a young winger. And a... a- important goal threat because i mean if you look at the stats from from you mean greedy <laughs> well you can and she she would always she would generally always take the free kicks as well ah. and she was she was good at that and she would take the corners and the free kicks and so that she would score from that as well loads of opportunities then to get on the score sheet she had um so obviously at sunderland national division first season a uh, relegation am i right um, no, 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 we stayed up the first year. First and this year. is where it gets interesting because well, it it doesn't it's maybe it's not interesting. No, it is it interesting. kind of is to me, but the but the ramifications of it are the important thing. Because we'd been with East Durham College, they had the first National Women's Football Academy based at Hoffel. It was uh, Jill Crueltard, the ex England captain, um Ted Copeland, the ex England women's manager in the nineties. They were heading that up. And it was residential as well. So some of the best players of that age, sort of 16 to 18, from around, some even from, couple from Scotland. So players from around the country all came to Durham. Who did they play for? <laughs> well, they played for Sunderland. And, it, and it, it made us even better than we were before. And we, we stayed up that first year. We, we were quite decent. But then what do you do when you go to somewhere like Durham to study for a BTEC or MVQ or whatever? 
you then you go, oh, I'm going to go on a, to America on a scholarship. So about seven or eight of our team or our squad all um, jetted off to America. And and then I think maybe well, maybe I had a few injuries or a couple of people in the, the first team squad get injured. And all of a sudden, you just totally depleted and we had to bring in some of the younger players. That was a, that was a hard season. The second season, mm-hmm. that's when we got relegated. And that was quite a blow to Mick who'd been working with a sort of promising team, some a core of loyal, local, good players, and then these talented younger players as well, and then all, and then they all left. And he thought, well, I'm going to have to find my own, and I'm going to have to find them quickly, and I'm going to have to bring them through. And he started scouting everywhere. He'd already worked at Bolden Girls a bit of that, so he, saw, he knew some of the sort of decent kids in the area but he got more involved in the center of excellence and he got more involved in scouting and that's when he started to find the real gems that are still playing for England now yeah I mean there were some real gems and when you look at the ages at which they were playing um women's football it's quite astounding we have got like Jill Scott was playing at 14 13 14 they all played at 14 that was the lower limit and you had Steph Houghton, the same. 14, yeah. And yeah. Carly, 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 Carly Telford. Telford. A goalkeeper at 14 in the... I mean, Rachel Brown Finnis, though, played in the 96 Cup final when she was 15. She was Astounding, quite really, but they must have... And you were, you know, you were in your 20s, you're a strong woman playing against young girls. And it must have been a, a great education for them. And you must have had a, a decent amount of influence on, like, how... They developed as as footballers because there's always a mentoring element when it when it comes to young young players and older players, isn't there? I don't I don't know that they uh, maybe to an extent. I think there's possibly uh, more dominant characters in the team that they not not necessarily not necessarily footballing wise, but just personality wise. Mm-hmm. That but on the field, I was the if I got dirty, I'd had a bad game because I I was just I was just I was just the organizer basically. Occasionally, you get the they do something that looks a bit swish at the back, and everybody has a heart attack. <laughs> don't don't do a cry turn on the edge of the box, whatever. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I remember training when Steph, because she was a centre forward. Mm-hmm. I remember in training, and um, she she would she sort of was elbowing me, <laughs> <laughs> looking to get away in like some kind of defending um setup that we had. I thought, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> this is actually fun now. Because there's some some level of sort of competition, but I it, I also for quite a few years would would go from one game to the next injured. I'm, I'm not saying I was um I'm not saying I was Paul McGrath level, <laughs> but it was it was frustrating for mm. me to to sort of be carrying injuries and then be expected to keep on on playing. So I didn't train as much as I would have liked to with some of these kids. Jill Scott never beat me on a one on one drill thing. Yeah. I just put that out there. She won't remember. <laughs> And like this is awful though. Carly Telford's debut was the was the game we got relegated from the national division the first time. Yeah, against Brighton. It's a long way to go, isn't it? There's probably about six of us in a room, in a travel lodge room. You know, it, it, it was just it, it wasn't posh or anything. <laughs> and then they had they got a free kick. She saved it, but she parried it when we all just expected her to keep a hold of it. And. Oh, a flat-footed guess, but you just think that's that's the keepers, 
and she spilled it and the forward nipped through and scored and we lost 1-0 and that, that effectively relegated us and she was obviously devastated and sort of cried for about eight hours home. That's how I remember it. But she come through it. There's quite a baptism. Yeah, she's done all right, she's hasn't come, she? She's come through she's it, she's done all good, right. She's such a good person. There's absolutely no way that she was to blame for us getting relegated <laughs> that year. There were, there were much bigger issues than that. But, you know, the, these young gems that Mick found, like, scored and played and did fantastic and obviously still had um, Mel there, still had yourself there and, and others and for a couple of years came really 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 close to regaining that position back in the in the in the top flight um i've been looking through some of the articles and reviews that you wrote in the in the men's program uh, at the time uh, which i recall reading on a half time at the stadium of light uh, as my half time reading always you know really intriguing and got some brilliant profiles amongst those as well uh, with some quite embarrassing answers, I think, for some of the uh, for some players who are now very senior pros or the manager of the football club. So it it was it must have been a fun time, you know. You were really successful, winning lots of games, came really really close a couple of times, and then and then we're up. Yeah, went back up again. We ended what two thousand and four, two thousand and five. That was a that was the first sort of year of mix. Brought these wonder kids in and sort of mixed in with the. The older lackeys like us, uh, Rachel Furness as well is important to mention. Mm-hmm. That that year, Steph played a lot of games. Jill in and out, Carly in goal, and and Rachel Furness was brilliant as well. Um, yeah, it was it was an absolute pleasure that that season. I I think it was a pleasure, although I was kind of getting a bit. I was annoyed with myself. I think it was similar again, sort of injuries and things and dislocating elbows and. That might have been the season before we lost to Blackburn twice that year, and I didn't play in either of those games, and I was fuming because they were they were, they were my nemesis. Well, the 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 they have been Sunderland's nemesis over the last few years, although we got the better of them twice this season. Good. Um, they they do you know they they got a free kick for Carly holding the ball for more than six seconds, which is just it doesn't uh, happen, me, does it? That's just Bullshit, and they and they scored <laughs> from it, and then and won that, and they the way they went on really annoyed me. And that was a long time it's not, ago. It's not like you've <laughs> you've held a grudge or anything about no. that. <laughs> that incident, not one little bit. So how long did you then go on and play for, for Sunderland Women? No, well, I, 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 that was my last game. We um, be, well, we drew at Stockport and won the league. They were sort of one of the main rivals. I remember that it's, they played at Cheadle Town, and there would be like aircraft flying over the ground. I think Fernie scored a, a thunderbolt. I pulled my calf, I think. Jill was ill, so she was crying because she, she couldn't play. Um but it was good it was good celebrations and that was a that was a good season. But then it was the Euros um in two thousand and five in England and I was working co coms for Eurosport. So I missed pre season and, and was kind of confidence was a bit rocky. And then somebody who was in the England camp not one of the players a friend of mine told me that um hope Paul and everybody had been slagging me off and whatever before my uh, co-coms because we weren't allowed to say that people weren't brilliant even when things weren't going great mm. in those days so that kind of hit me a bit and I, I just kind of didn't fancy going back for a bit and alan and mick kept saying you'll be back you'll be back but i didn't ever i guess sort of burnt myself out a bit Report. I was doing columns for the Times, 
and and all like on the on the coach on the way back from games. So we would have played a game, and then I might have had a a, a new bumhole ripped by Arsenal or something, and then I'd have to write a report about this goals in the Times, and I'd have to phone round all of the other national division teams or whatever and get the scores and who scored and send it off. But you would have a dial-up mobile connection thing in those days. It was, it was it, I was just doing it twenty four seven. It was it was kind of hard work. Is my excuse. I still regret stopping in two thousand and five, though. How old were you when you stopped? I was thir- 30. 30. 30. So you still think you might have had a, a season or two if you could get could have got yourself fit? <sighs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, I was I was um, helped sort of coach local teams and stuff, and that was good fun. You when you when you you've played from fifteen or something, and you've given all of your weekends to it forever and it's a huge amount of traveling that you've done it does kind of it does take its toll in a sense yeah I bet and a lot of players do struggle with that last that last bit almost kind of coming to terms with it and 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 moving into coaching moving into media you'd already had that background you know in media right from kind of from a few years before obviously with with being in uh, involved in on the ball and that did that then just kind of become what you did? It was the how you stayed connected with the game? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, absolutely. Because there, there wasn't really anybody doing it then. So when a journalist wrote an article about women's football or a radio programme wanted to talk about women's football, then like they, they, that's I was rent a gob. <laughs> so that's <laughs> they would come they'd come and ask me and I'd spend time chatting to them and explaining stuff or um, going on air and embarrassing myself on the Gloria Honeyford programme to be asked about ladettes or something like that. Absolutely horrendous. <laughs> Do you know, but I used to... It, the, it's an interesting way of charting how the game's changed because in the early days, I would go, be asked on the radio programmes to and be asked, why do girls and women want to play football? Should girls and women be allowed to play football? That was a genuine debate. And it's still a problem now because the BBC have to balance everything. So you end up having these discussions with Ray Wilkins. That was one. He didn't want to watch women's football or didn't think that women should play football. He obviously needed the money because he helped at Chelsea with the women's team. It was just They would just roll people out to come out with nonsense. Yeah. That was frustrating. So And then that it kind of morphed to why don't the women get paid to play Um why don't the media give women's football more coverage? Which the answer to that is is plainly, well, don't be using this time to ask me that question. Just talk about the sport itself. Yeah. Give it some coverage. And now, and look where we are now. It's insane. It blows my mind. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it's come. It's come a really long way. There's still a good way to go. I mean, we struggle a little bit in terms of fan media. I think. Um, not wishing to blow our own trumpet uh, t- too much, but you know, there's there's kind of one Sunderland fanzine that gives us any time, um, or very much time at all. And amongst a lot of football clubs, there's not too much fan media around it, ar- around uh, women's football. And and I think in some ways that's reflected in kind of the the patchy support. And I think this kind of is a theme that goes across Sunderland's history of having some brilliant high points and successes and periods at which we were right at the top of the game um, with periods where we brought through some phenomenal talent um, that's gone on to be you know, some of the, the top players in world football, both kind of in the past and, and currently. But then 
it gets abandoned. And it's the first thing that's abandoned. And and one question I want to ask you is somebody who's got like a long perspective on this and a professional interest in it and knows a lot kind of about the game overall. It's almost the 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 difference, I guess, between a, a Durham, which is an independent club focused on the women's game, and a Sunderland, where it's kind of we have we have to fight to get it recognised. We've had to lobby and campaign to make sure that it's on every agenda at the club. And then you're kind of your global super brands who see it as part of their <laughs> their corporate strategy to have a women's section, possibly because it is good for their brand rather than necessarily the love of it. And and it's where you see that that mix because in in the women's championship at the minute. We've got a mix of your Durhams and a Lewis who are unique, and you like clubs like Sunderland and Watford, and that's well. I was going to say, and London City Lionesses are are similar as well as the as the Durham. Yeah, who broke who broke away? You know, they they you almost unilaterally decided to walk away from from Millwall. Well, Millwall so, Millwall weren't happy about that, <laughs> so that's no, a different. But it wasn't unilaterally; it was kind of stolen from them. Would be the argument. Oh well, I, mean, I probably don't know quite enough about that situation. But there's, it's that mix of different kind of models. You have got some that are part time in the in our league in in the championship. You got some that are fully full time, including clubs like Coventry United, who are tiny in their men's side. And their women's side are really uh, fully pro. And you've got Lewis, who are... So, it's not going well for them, is no, it? No, <laughs> and, and Lewis as well, who have had a really patchy time. Then you've got clubs like Sunderland and Watford, where it's they've come up at the same time. We're playing each other on Sunday. And have got a similar kind of relationship with the, with the men's team. And it's where you see that mix and where it might develop, really, is what I'm interested in your perspective on. I think it's the question is always like it's it, the the goal is sustainability and it's also uh there's a a general manager of a WSL team said this to me recently and we all kind of acknowledge it as well it's the balance between what what you want to spend on the women's team and what you can what it what it justifies spending on you know in terms of its the the revenue it brings in so so there's always a balance between that, which which your average fan of a club can kind of get upset about and you can kind of understand because it has become all about balancing the books. But I, I think what what I would love is, and it's probably the last chance they'll get, they might disagree, but I'd love it if Durham got promoted yeah. because it would, in my opinion, it would absolutely put the cat amongst the pig, pigeons for the FA because I don't think this is what their vision entails it's not that sort of it that doesn't that isn't gonna look sexy on sky you know for your average sort of fan when you're trying to to sell it it is about the big brands that is what the the premier league are am i allowed to say this on the record i think we all expect at some point the premier league is going to take over i think i think it's been i think it's been well trailed could that could Mm. come in i don't think this won't be the first pod that that's been been mentioned as an aside on. I mean, I have a, I have a, a little bit of a, almost a conspiracy theory, but it's a little bit based in historical practice. And it's a bit, maybe a bit of a, the fear of a Sunderland fan, I guess, that Durham are a really juicy little morsel, that a big 
northeast club who might be looking to jump up the pyramid really quickly could um, swallow up quite easily in the same way that, say, Durham Wasps ice hockey team were, Sunderland Scorpions basketball team were, um, Gosforth rugby team were swallowed up by Newcastle United in the 1990s, that with uh, the, the noisy neighbours up the road just haven't been taken over, that, that there's a risk that Durham may be, may be on their horizon. Do you think I'm barking up the wrong tree or is there a, a, genuine, a genuine possibility that that could happen? Well, one of the best ways to sports wash quite quickly with the um, reputation that you have as a nation state um, is a, it would be to have a women's team. So that seems the most likely way to do it. Although uh, I, I would be surprised if Lee Sanders would give up everything that he's built. But at the same time, it's hard work, isn't it? I, I love that they've managed to, to have the funding to be competitive, to be ready if they do get promoted to compete that that's Durham. Um but I'm also proud I, I'm more I'm more excited about this Sunderland team. I was excited about the previous WSL version mm-hmm. of the Sunderland team. I mean one of one of the best games I've ever been to in my life and I've I've had a season ticket for Sunderland men for thirty odd years. Not this year. Terrible, isn't it? Um it was when Sunderland beat Chelsea 4-0 and Emma Hayes kicked a water bottle into the crowd and, and Beth Mead scored a hat-trick <laughs> and she'd rolled a car a couple of days before. I absolutely loved that game. It was that, that I've got goosebumps thinking of it. It makes me happy. So I loved that that side. But this the new this is this makes me feel like the club cares about the women's team and the fact that Mel's stuck with it and that Keyes is stuck with it and Abby's come back and there's there's a sort of passion to make it work and there's some really good young mm-hmm. players coming through so that that really excites me and I, I sort of feel proud of them of having done that and Watford are sort of similar I, I, what I find frustrating is why the hell didn't those clubs at that time have the people who were running them now mm. when they both dropped out of the league in what 2018 they've made it so much more difficult to they were in such a good position yeah but that's the women's football is so bloody frustrating. It is, and what it needs for the wrong reasons. What what it kind of needs, I think, and you know, the sporting director at Sunderland, Christian Speakman, is clear about this. You know, he, he he answered a question at a dinner that I wrote a few weeks ago, um, when he was speaking about this. They're going to keep supporting them. There's a three to five year plan that they're going to put in place alongside the men's team. They're giving them. All of the data and analytics, all of you know the the training time. Obviously, there's still part time, so it's on an evening. But there's going to be hopefully be a pathway there to professionalism for the for the squad. I wanted to get your view on on like on that and on for a club like a Sunderland or a Watford, where you've got obviously ambitions and both teams to be Premier League teams in the, in the men's side and WSL teams in the the women's side, and like what they might need to do in terms of investment to get to get to to become a professional outfit or, or you know almost professional outfit and and to make it because it would be great if if Durham could go up and really shake it up but what we want to see in two or three years time is Sunderland really battling right at the top of the league um and it's what that pathway might be and if you've got any insights into where where they might go well i think we've talked about it already a, a used sort of mixed example and that's what Mel's doing you've got to build your own basis there and the the, the sort of 
the loyalty but there's a there's a benefit to there, there was always a drawback to being geographically sort of isolated mm-hmm. to an extent but there's a benefit to it as well because there's a pride and and also wanting to stay in the area and the the hinterland is big for finding talent and that, and that's that's being done in the the regional talent club and all of that that that's in place and then it, i suppose i i hesitate to say that cuz spending more money isn't going to bring success because the, they should have allowed that Sunderland team that didn't fit their full-time sort of ideas, mm. they, the FA, they should have allowed them to carry on battling away with what they had. They should have, if if they weren't good enough, they would have been relegated anyway. They didn't need to be demoted, that you need a sporting outcome. Mm-hmm. But they've proven time and time again that it's it's about resources and and, and finances most importantly and then the sort of distribution of the talent follows that so you, you just need to have that good local base and and then you have a reputation that you can then bring in new players but there's so much competition to do that yeah it i, I don't know how you yeah. see in the wsl at least i didn't answer your question no but i mean it it's in it it's it's interesting you're talking about resources and bringing players in. There's clubs, obviously, in the WSL who are spending, you know, six-figure-plus sums on footballers to bring them in. And when that starts happening on a, more, on a really regular basis, that's going to really increase the, I guess, the gap, do you think? Yeah, it will do. I, I, I think to, to, to reinforce the point of you need to build more than buy-in is if you actually look at Coventry if you look at London City they are full-time and they have brought players in but but as soon as something goes wrong or there's no with the greatest respect I hope they don't listen to this but they don't have the cohesion and the passion that a Sunderland or a Durham has and and that isn't just geographical. That's that's because you're with your mates. Mm. There has to be an element of we've come through this together to an extent because there will always be new talent and and people come in. And Grace McCatty isn't from up here and she's been brilliant all season and is a is a really just a top person. But and Watford to an extent has that core as well. So that will if they can uh, cryogenically sort of freeze Helen Ward at night. So that she sort of stays thirty five and carries on scoring, then, then that they they will benefit from that. There's a there's a big history to women's football in in Watford, less than in Sunderland, but almost on a par with and 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 so that that matters. Well, it certainly matters to me, and and I would hope that it mattered to players, and that can count for a lot. I think I think you're absolutely right, and and obviously there is this new cohort of. Of youngsters coming through at Sunderland, you got Neve Heron, you got Jess Brown, you got you know Holly Manders, and 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 all these girls who are of a similar age and and look like really really good mates. And, and I think that the that their recognition in England squads is partly well, it's obviously because they've got the mm-hmm. ability and the potential, but it's also partly because of the reputation that the Centre of Excellence and the the Regional Talent Club has. So. It, they they are getting players selected, whereas some clubs quite often get overlooked. And obviously because of the input that Sunderland have had into the England women's team, that that's that matters. Mm-hmm. And and so when 
it's good when you have kids in England squads because they meet other players who might come and sign for the club in the future and they hear good things about it. They go, oh, Sunderland are good. I, I, I might go and play for them. It, it's just about maintaining... Because it, it won't just be about um, cold, hard cash, will it? It'll be about wanting to go to a club. And if you only hear thing, good things about them and, and think good things about them, then that can be an attraction. Well, I think that's a really nice way to end this conversation because it's hopeful and it's optimistic. And Sunderland have got Watford on Sunday. It's at 3.30 on the uh, FA player. Will you be watching or have you got a media engagement at that at that time elsewhere? I'm I'm like a media whore. <laughs> I'm working for MUTV oh, yeah. doing the Everton Man U game from Old Trafford. Wow. Bizarre, I know. And then I'm um, skedaddling over to uh, Man City, Chelsea. Wow. <laughs> God knows what's going to happen. So it means I can't go to see Sunderland again. Uh, well, I'll be watching Durham at midday with my dad, who's a half and half scarf guy when it comes to, <laughs> to women. He doesn't have a half and oh, half. for women, that's right. He doesn't have a half and half scarf uh, for women's football. He does have a Durham scarf and I'm, I am ribbing him about it. And he will be listening to this and, and text me about it. And we're going to do a watch-along party on Twitter Spaces for the uh, the Sunderland game at half past three. So there's going to be me and Katie and Ant uh, for half of it. I think he's got work. And Graham probably as well. It's going to be four of us talking about what we're seeing on the screen, trying to distract ourselves from the FA player commentary. And, uh, and hopefully people will be able to listen along on their phone and uh, maybe mute the uh, the the FA player and follow and follow Sunderland uh, with some fans, um, and then I think I'm going to have to drive back down uh, to Wales. So it's going to be a fun weekend for me, um, but it's going to be a fun weekend for everyone. It's Women's Football Weekend. All of our listeners, we encourage if you can't get to Watford, uh, I think they're playing a little village just outside London, and watch on the on the FA player. Um, it's all live. It's free. All you have to do is register and you can watch the, the, the lasses play. Um, with the sound off. With the sound off. You can listen to us um, on Twitter. And we're going to have loads of coverage on the on the website over the weekend. We're kind of taken over. Um, so I want to say thank you very much, Jen, for your time this evening. You've been very generous with it. So, uh, yeah, cheers for that. No problem. It was a pleasure. Sorry for waffling on. Oh no, no problem at all. We like we we love a good bit of waffle on Rotary Pop. So uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And yeah, have a good women's football weekend, and we'll speak to you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. 
Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body. And five types of Hyaluronic Acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.